Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her. In this episode, we'll discuss the second Sunday of Easter, which this year falls on April 11th. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. In honor of who you might say is the star, or at least a major guest character, of our gospel reading for today, our deep dive today is about questions and skepticism in Christianity. Both Emily and I are very fond of our gospel reading for today, because mm -hmm. Thomas uh, asks questions to Jesus. Actually, come to think of it, he is a skeptic about Jesus having come back from the dead. I don't think he actually asks a question. But... Yeah. Jesus does not scold him. And as a result, I grew up with a understanding that questions and skepticism were a natural part of Christianity. Uh, and I realized that there are a lot of people out there who did not grow up with that understanding. So uh, today we'd like to talk a bit about the history of questions uh, and that kind of skepticism in Christianity. Because for a lot of people, the only thing they've really heard of is Galileo uh, getting yelled at by the church for daring to uh, disagree with how they thought the universe was organized, uh, and then may or may not have made a statement on his deathbed. Uh, saying, but it does move, and going back to say that he was right all along. Hmm. Whether or not he did that, we still don't actually know. But the point is that for fairly large parts of its history, there have been large chunks of the church that have not suppressed and have indeed encouraged questions and skepticism, and those tend to be my favorite parts. I was a philosophy major, can you tell? <laughs> so, one of the first people that we have actual record of and know their name and have their writings from the church who talked about uh, questioning Christianity is St. Anselm, who lived in the 11th century. Uh, St. Anselm came up with a argument for the existence of God, uh, and he wrote it down. And uh, to be entirely honest with you, it's actually still pretty good. He had three points, uh, and the last point, according to my college philosophy professor, was never quite entirely disproven. Uh, which, uh, if you guys are interested in talking about the arguments for or against the existence of God at some point in another deep dive, I can go into. But Anselm is still my favorite. And the fact that he bothered writing all this down in a time when literacy was limited and paper and ink were uh, fairly well prized uh, means that people were asking these questions in the first place. And mm -hmm. he felt that it needed to be addressed. And he did not do so in a angry or contemptuous way. I mean, he certainly felt that people who didn't believe in God were wrong with a certain <laughs> amount of enthusiasm. Uh, he was a monk. That was kind of part of his job description. But uh, he did not feel the anger or contempt that we often see among people uh, in Christianity who don't like it when people ask those questions in the first place. And then about 200 years later uh, came along St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, perhaps better known in general, uh, and he was a, a very organized and systematized kind of guy. Uh, I like to think that if he hadn't gone into the church, he probably would have made an excellent lawyer or engineer or possibly librarian, uh, because by golly, he loved putting things into categories, and he reminds me very much of my grandfather, the engineer. <laughs> and uh, he wrote the Summa Theologica, in which he tried to 
organize and systematize theology. Uh, all of the various thoughts that people have about theology, he put them into categories, he tried to make the categories have subcategories, he tried to organize the various questions that people had about the faith, and all kinds of different questions, some of which we kind of forget that people have bothered asking at some point, because some parts of the church we're just so used to now. And hmm. it's enormous. And part of that was that he did list a few different arguments for God's existence in the Summa Theologica. Okay, to be entirely fair, Aquinas was maybe a little more condescending than Anselm, <laughs> but again, still not angry, still not contemptuous. Mm -hmm. I get the feeling the condescension was more along the lines of he may have been one of those guys who was slightly condescending while talking to anyone who wasn't him. Not so much mm -hmm. that... <laughs> <laughs> At least that's what I've picked up from reading him. Yeah. Not so much that it would go along uh, religious or any other kind of lines. So, Speaking of people who asked questions or had thoughts that we aren't used to being normal in Christianity anymore, one of the original fathers of the church, as they are called, uh, the ancient church fathers, uh, Origen, in the third century, in his writings, assumed that the creation story was a parable, not a literal historical account. So I like to include him when I'm talking about questions and skepticism in Christianity, because the number of people who belong to the ELCA, which is a fairly liberal mainline denomination, who I have had tell me to my face that they don't believe that you can accept evolution and be a Christian at the same time, continues to boggle me. So, For the record, neither Kay nor I, as pastors in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, are those people. Correct. Science. Good. Yay, science. Yes. Saves lives, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Also, one of my favorite people to talk about when we talk about doubt or skepticism or those sorts of things is Paul Tillich, who not only sure. talked about skepticism and kind of arguments around God and who God is and what God is about, but I love the flip side framing that Paul Tillich has of not just not discrediting or looking down on people's questions and stuff, but actually saying, no, doubt is an integral and necessary part of faith. Yes. If you don't have doubt, then you don't have faith. Without doubt, it is knowledge or certainty. But with doubt is the only point at which it becomes faith. Yay, Tillich. Yes. He's one of the few, like, dead white guys that I actually am like. <laughs> There are a handful. And I think that there's a certain parallel for that of, if you call yourself a Christian, but you claim that you have absolutely no doubts and you never have, I kind of question if you've really pushed yourself when it comes to your faith, mm -hmm. if you've really started asking the hard questions, if you've reached a, a level of acknowledgement of the nuances and complexities of the universe. I, I just, I don't, see how you can have a, a truly mature faith and not have asked a few questions along the way. That's Maybe that's just my philosophy brain. Uh, that's entirely possible. But No, but that makes sense. And that's, I think, for me, at, particularly as a queer and non-binary trans person, and we're actually recording this like the day before Trans Visibility Day, but as a queer and trans person, I know the value of questioning because for many of us in the queer community, 
we have been forced to question our faith because people who espouse our faith have told us that we are less valuable, that we are less important, and all sorts of other completely wrong things. And so then we've had to do the wrestling. We've had to wrestle with the Bible and with the scripture passages that people quote. And and I think that it has been a gift because I know many people in the trans and queer community where if we are Christian, it is a much deeper Christianity than most other people who maybe were born Christian and never questioned and just and never had to question. It was just always what they were and how they right. were. Question. It's a good thing. Yes. And Emily's comments about Paul Tillich uh, made me think of Kierkegaard, a Norwegian, oh goodness, theologian. Uh, I say that because I am firmly from the Swedish school of Lutheranism and the <laughs> Norwegians generally just make me sigh and shake my head as wonderful and delightful as they are. I'm sure. I come from uh, both Norwegian and Swedish ancestry and my growing up Lutheran church was not an ethnic specific congregation. So I'm going to reject that false bite. <laughs> I definitely grew up in a Swedish German church where the concept of a Swede marrying a Norwegian was way more questionable than it should have been. <laughs> My grandfather's parents were a Swede and a Norwegian. The Norwegian spoke oh, Danish and lived in France for a while. And cool. he married a Catholic. So my family tree is just all about the yep. ecumenic ecumenism. We, we have a Catholic branch as well. The Swedish approach to Christianity and the Norwegian approach to Christianity have slightly different personalities, I would say. Uh, and Kierkegaard is definitely of the Norwegian bent, which makes sense because that's, you know, where he's from. And he's also big into existentialism, which after a deep dive that my senior high school English teacher did into existentialism just makes me tired. <laughs> I have never really been into it. I, I read The Stranger. It was interesting. She had us read a few other things. Most of them were pretty terrible. Oh, and also really depressing. And, you know, high school was not all that cheerful to begin with. So I, maybe it's just my own history that colors that for me. But the thing about Kierkegaard's experience of exploring existentialism and being a Christian theologian is that existentialism by its nature requires a certain openness to skepticism and questions. Uh, and so he also had that openness as well. Hmm. And as I look at the history of the church in general, to make a fairly sweeping generalization here, I notice that the thou shalt not question point of view becomes much, much more prevalent when either the power structure is noticeably corrupt, especially around money or occasionally sex, or the people in power are nervous about their ability to keep that power. Mm -hmm. And they want to keep that power. Yeah. My two examples for that would be the Reformation itself, when mm -hmm. Luther discovered the corruption in the Catholic Church at the time, and also more recent clergy sex scandals, where it turns out that people in power, largely men, have come to abuse their power, and as a part of that, have also refused to be questioned mm. in regards to whether or not they abused that power. Uh, and there have been several stories of that. Yeah, I think that's a big piece for me that I hadn't really thought about. But the different denominations and institutions, whenever there are institutions where 
questioning is not permitted or like people are dissuaded from questioning. Yes. Those are the places where it's like, no, pay attention, right? Like how many young adult dystopias have this like utopic thing where people don't question. And if you do question, uh uh-oh, because the power, because it's actually a dystopia and not a utopia. And I think that that's, yeah. Which is why when I wrote my book, Grace Alone, Lutheran in the 21st Century, available through all major retailers, (laughs) I put in a lesson that talks about identifying and finding a healthy faith community. And one of the major characteristics is, do they allow you to question? Do they encourage you to question? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've always found that to be a characteristic of a healthy community. I think part of it is because there's a innate recognition within the welcoming of questioning that says that we may be different. You may think differently than I do, but we are still both human beings and we both deserve respect and dignity. Mm -hmm. And I think that that point of view is fundamental to the Christian faith. But there are a boatload of people who disagree with me on that one. So, yeah, agreed. You can't question I've got questions. Yeah. Well, and for that matter, (laughs) it's also behind the only useful conversation I've ever had with people about Blue Lives Matter is that once a public institution loses the trust of the general public, the only way that they can get back that trust is to earn it. And some of that involves an openness to questioning and uh, accountability and transparency. Um, And the church has gone through that process multiple times, sometimes with more success than others. And law enforcement needs to be open to that too. I am skeptical of that because I think it opens a can of worms around, like, I don't think law enforcement is actually necessary. Well, yeah, no, there's also that. But when I'm having these conversations, it's with incredibly conservative people. It's true. When I put it that way, it's the only thing that I've ever had get through. That makes more sense. And I think having that context of, like, Right, because it does, well, I mean, context matters. The ways that we question even the context matters in yeah. those questionings. As we dive into our readings for this episode, our first reading is Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. The early church held their possessions in common to provide for all in need while filled with power and grace. So one of the themes in this passage is socialism. Right? Holding all things in common, no private property, it is socialism at its best. And I love that. As someone who takes my socialism from the Bible, you know, this is a big part of where it comes from. But it also reminded me of Utopia by Thomas More. And the civilization, the culture that is described in it, is this culture where Things are held in common where gold is not this doesn't have this special value where war is discouraged where there is no private property and where people are able to to actually live together and hold things in common and I think that's a beautiful image of this. I might also throw in for people who aren't terribly familiar with socialism or Christian socialism in particular. Not having private property doesn't mean that you don't have things that are particularly yours. Like, there mm-hmm. are certain, say, hygiene-related items that you don't want other people using. That's yeah, I don't share reasonable. my toothbrushes. Right. So, not having private property versus not having privately used personal belongings. 
those are two separate things. Yes. There's a realization that this does not mean that you don't have anything, but precisely because there is not private property, your needs are more likely to be met. Yes. Not every household needs a table saw or a sewing machine. It's true. And if you can work out a schedule, sharing one actually works pretty well. Yeah. I don't need a table saw and I don't want to store one, but occasionally I would like one. Just to use. Although preferably not while your neighbors are recording a podcast. You know. (laughs) Kay is throwing some shade at the neighbors who thankfully don't don't actually listen to the podcast. (laughs) It it might be a weed whacker. I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell. I'm not asking. That's fair. Yeah. So if you haven't checked out socialism, acts is actually a great way to like think about it. And we'll try and find an article on Christian socialism to link to as well. In verse 32, we read, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Any resemblance to the Borg is strictly accidental for any Star Trek fans out there. Uh, Although, (laughs) since you mentioned socialism so recently, I will say that the first thing that popped into my head was uh, Lily Sloan in Star Trek First Contact uh, responding to Picard's mention of the Borg as, Hmm, sounds Swedish. (laughs) Like socialism. However, given Paul's letters, uh, as we find in the Bible, I think that this phrase may have been slightly more aspirational than a day-to-day historical truth. We can hope. It's a lovely thought. It may have lasted for a while, and yet it didn't really take all that long for people to start arguing again. Yeah, I think, as with most things in the Bible, there is an aspect of aspirational reality to any sort of community realizing of things and that's like that's not just with this particular how we choose to live but if you look at a lot of Judaism there's like a lot of rules and boundaries around like very we have a death penalty and look at all of the things that we've set up to make it really really hard to actually put someone to death yes and I think that that's a gift one of the gifts that I really appreciate in Judaism Yes. But that also, like, pops up in Acts, where this is the case, but we'll soon read that there are a couple people who didn't do this, and what happened to them? Yeah. I was looking at that verse, too, and my thought when I read, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, was, of course, again with the Ood. Yay, Ood. Ah, Doctor Who. The Ood who hold one brain space. (laughs) And another brain space in their hand. That's true. (laughs) One collective brain space and another one in their hand. I do love that they just, like, hold it. Yeah. Yeah. I really was very surprised when it turned out that they hadn't, like, figured out how to have a belt pouch or something. I I would want both (laughs) Or, like, a pocket. You could could have it in, like, a breast pocket. Sure. But I I like having both hands. Anyway. Mm -hmm. In verse 33, we read, With great power the apostles gave their testimony. And speaking of Doctor Who, that, of course, reminds me of Martha Jones in The Last of the Time Lords, when she Mm. spends a whole year traveling around the world telling people about the Doctor in order to save his life. I love Martha Jones. She's fantastic. She is, yes. Mm -hmm. She doesn't get enough credit. The only way that she could have been more awesome is if she had managed to convince the Doctor to actually, you know, find a therapist, and we all knew that wasn't happening. (laughs) True. Yeah, the doctor could use some therapy. For sure. I mean, everyone can. 
Yay, therapy. Yeah. In verse 35, we read that they laid all of their possessions at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Unlike the charity that is done by the abnegation faction in Divergent, which is, here, have the cast-offs from everybody else. And which is actually a lot of how we do charity in the world of, like, toxic charity, where we send what we don't want to people. Our billions of used t-shirts we don't want anymore, which Africa actually is asking us to stop sending because there are just so many of them that... Mm -hmm. And it has decimated local economies when it comes to clothing and linen and cloth and stuff. So toxic charity... Not a great thing. And that's not what this is talking about. This is more like mutual aid groups. I know in Des Moines, but I think throughout the country during the pandemic, there have been a lot of mutual aid groups that have popped up. Some of them popped up specifically as bail funds, which shout out to the Des Moines Mutual Aid Bail Fund for bailing me out. But also mutual aid groups that here in Des Moines, we've had mutual aid groups that have been making sure, especially during the cold snaps, that people who are houseless have the heaters and propane tanks and those sorts of things that they need or have a hotel room to stay in. And also mutual aid groups that are making sure there's rent relief for folks in the midst of a pandemic and unprecedented, well, and ridiculously high unemployment. Um, And like we have in our neighborhood where Trinity Las Americas is located, there's an urban farm sweet tooth farm that just recently in the last few months started a community fridge so there's like the free pantries free libraries this is a free fridge it's been framed in really great and powerful ways that it is not there for you to give your cast off stuff like if your kids won't eat it why do you expect somebody else to eat it and there's a little bit of nuance in that of like if your kids are super picky or whatever and it's actually good food but um, or allergic or allergic But I love, yeah, those mutual aid groups of, like, here are the gifts of abundance that we have together. Here's how we can share them. Yeah. Our second reading for the second Sunday after Easter is from 1 John, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 2. The author testifies collectively that God cleanses us from the sinfulness in which we live and presents us with a new way to live based on God's all-encompassing love. So one of the themes from this passage was kind of the setting up a story or testimony. So the way that this is framed, and this is the beginning of 1 John, and there are three Johns, three epistles that are named for John, but it's, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen, right? But it goes into this whole thing that was like, This is how, like, I can hear a narrator of a movie be like, this is how life was back then. We did this, and we did that. Experiences were this, and experiences were that. And we learned so many great things. It particularly reminds me of, like, the introduction to the movie Interstellar, which has a very clear way of doing it that's not just, like, a narrator saying it. Sure. Yeah, I love that, like... The setup of like, here's the testimony, here's the story to come. Or as the Harry Potter fandom used to put it back in the day, and we transfer to the Department of Backstory. (laughs) I love that. I hadn't heard that. In verse 3, we read, 
We declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Sometimes, in order to be in fellowship, really, with each other, it turns out that you need to understand what each other have gone through. Like, for example, in Lord of the Rings, once the four hobbits return to the Shire, they feel kind of separate from their neighbors because of all of their really extraordinary experiences. Mm -hmm. Particularly in the movies, which skip the scouring of the Shire and portray the Shire as still being pretty much exactly like when they left. Yeah, and it, and that they each experience it in different ways, right? Frodo experiences that disconnect the most acutely. Yeah, and then and the others in varying goes degrees. Into the list. Yeah, the others have varying degrees, but are able to eventually integrate in new ways. And even the hobbits themselves, while they're still on their adventures, for a while there, Frodo and Sam have split off from Merry and Pippin. And when they run into each other again, they kind of have to get used to each other again, because they've all been through some stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then in verse 5, we read, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. So I have definitely had thoughts about the way that the church communicates ideas and has shared the gospel and so forth that are related to this. But I don't know that I've ever specifically thought of the entire history of all of the church's ministry as one gigantic game of telephone before. But it explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like the whole miscommunications, things getting emphasized that weren't necessarily emphasized in the beginning, people having their own proclivities and prejudices and putting those in when they weren't originally meant to be there. Just like looking at the history of the church and assuming that it's a gigantic game of telephone explains a lot. It really does. I actually frequently think about that when I do queries for querying.org. Sure. There are so many different times where it's like, this is what we heard from this person who heard from this person. And I think I recently did that with one of the Gospels where it was like, this person told this person told this person told this person told Jesus, hey, somebody wants to talk to you. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't know telephone existed back before electricity. Yeah. And then you start thinking about, I mean, I've, I've definitely been thinking for quite a few years now about the various layers of interpretation that you have to go through in order to get to the original message of the gospel uh, in the Bible or uh, certainly in any more recent works. Mm -hmm. But but specifically as the game of telephone, uh, yeah, that explains a lot. Yeah. So. I looked at verse 5 and I looked at the second half where it says that God is light and in God there is no darkness at all, which is, as listeners of our podcast know, problematic because particularly in our context it has a lot of implications around race and racial value and racism and white supremacy and the way that we've talked about all of those things in uh, history and mm -hmm. our use of light and darkness imagery in order to discuss those yeah yes positing lightness as good and darkness as bad is not helpful and not accurate yeah and has very harmful connotations and so one of the questions that came up for me was, what would it mean, though, if what it was really about was that God has and is all parts of the spectrum, the light spectrum, that okay. even the things that we cannot see that are not made visible. And so then if God is light and in God there is no darkness at all, it's that God is just everything. And usually my explanation for this is more around like, Darkness is actually the absence of light, 
and light is the fullness of like the bright white light is yes. the fullness of the light spectrum. The full spectrum. The, the, yeah. the visible spectrum. So what if instead of even just that kind of a dynamic, it's not only that visible light spectrum for us, but also like the X-rays and the gamma rays and the infrared rays. And what, what would that be like sure. if we acknowledged God as light in that sense? Because there is nowhere that doesn't have at least some types of light, even in the darkest yeah. places that we can find. Like even black holes shoot off X-rays. I think the other way that I've occasionally thought of this is that there are no hidden parts of God. God mm -hmm. is entirely upfront about who God is and what God does at all times. God does not hide stuff from us. That is very un-Luther of you, the, like, hiddenness of God. Martin Luther always talked about the hiddenness of God. Well, okay, it's, it's, it's been a while since I've read that chunk of Luther, to be entirely honest with you, but Same. I'm pretty sure that Luther was talking about our inability to to understand God with that mm -hmm. rather than God's attempts to make God's self understood to us. Mm. Like I'm saying that God isn't trying to hide anything. Uh, whereas we are still fallible and broken. And have trouble noticing. Yeah. Okay. I can see that, I guess. I like to think of God as the ultimate lesson on how to fill out an online dating profile. Because my rule for online dating, uh, back when I was doing that, which is how I met my husband, was just be absolutely blunt and upfront about everything that matters to you right off the bat, and you will go through so much less pain and suffering down the road. Mm, that makes sense. Also, the thing that sparked this conversation for me is actually from Battlestar Galactica, which I just finished, except for the prequel. Just cool. finished it. But the... Cavill, or model number one in Battlestar Galactica, at one point is like decrying the Cylon bodies and talks about wanting to see more of the light spectrum than the eyes that he has can see. So wanting to see the gamma rays and stuff. So that got me. Like Jordy LaForge from Star Trek. Yes. And then in verse 8, we read, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So dystopias frequently start out as the perfect society, right? It's framed as the perfect society. You see this Matched is the Matched series is one of the ones that most obviously does this, but like everything is perfect. We've solved all the problems of the world. And then you start to see the cracks in that. But I think that like gets at what we were talking about earlier of if you can't question it's yeah. probably not healthy. If if there's this idea that we have to be perfect or look perfect or that we are perfect, there's probably something wrong. And I think this happens a lot in the church today. I know in our denomination, there's a lot of wanting to appear perfect and wanting to appear like we have done all the work on racism that we need to do. Yeah. When in fact, we have definitely not. Yeah. Um, as we talked about some in our Palm Passion episode with Lenny yes. and with and our Good Friday episode with Jessica. And come to think of it, the other place that I have absolutely seen that parallel of thou shalt not question and we must appear to be perfect is pretty much every abusive family I've ever met. Yep. Yeah. Although personally, as a Lutheran who grew up with what we now call the Green Hymnal, uh, I do have to say that that verse is one of my favorites because it used to be a verse that we would hear every week uh, mm. in 
one of the quirks of being Lutheran is that we are generally used to doing a order of confession and forgiveness at the beginning of almost every service. Mm -hmm. And that line was included in the standard version of that in the green hymnal. And in our new hymnal, uh, they shortened it a bit and uh, took it out. And that is the one real beef that I have with the new hymnal. I don't Uh, think I realized they had taken it out. I haven't really systematically looked at the LBW, which is the green one, and the ELW, which is the cranberry one, side by side for that. But I I do like... The church I'm working with now still uses the green hymnal. So I've kind of gotten my refresher. Yeah. Yeah. I do like the intentionality with which many of us who are Lutherans do confession and forgiveness at the beginning of service. Yeah. I think it can get rote, but I think there's always an important piece of making sure that we are acknowledging that we are not perfect, that we cannot do it all. Yeah. Yeah. I also really appreciated a conversation with a ecumenical colleague who heard that we do confession every week and said, wow, that's hardcore. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I am just deeply fond of that now. I don't actually remember who said it, which I feel bad about. So if that was you, please tell me because <laughs> you're awesome. And that was a great conversation. Yeah, we did the congregation I serve right now, Trinity Las Americas. We did, for Lent, our series had Confession and Forgiveness. Sure. And we do a bilingual service, and so it's much more pared down than I think a lot of other folks. But we intentionally did Confession and Forgiveness as part of our Lent series, which I think is really good. But even when when I do pulpit supply or when I lead worship for congregations, both TLA and other congregations... One of the things that I always tell anyone who's helping lead worship is, okay, and remember, if we don't mess up somewhere during the service, we've got to do it at the end just to make sure that people know that we're not perfect. And I love that, like, framing of, like, we can't let a service, like, I don't want to ever let a service go by where somebody thinks it went perfectly. Yeah. Because it never is perfect. And when we get to that point where that's our goal, then we are more willing to hide things about who we are and who we are as a community. And that's not healthy. Interestingly enough, my college's chapel was actually built with that thought in mind. Uh, When you stand in the center aisle between the two rows of pews and you look up at the front of the chapel, uh, there is a very large window, which is broken into four pieces uh, in such a way that there is a cross in the window. Mm -hmm. But the window itself and the aisle of the pews are very much not on center with each other. They don't line up. Intentionally. Mm in order to make it clear that perfection is not something that we achieve. Yeah, that is not how I If you're not specifically looking at it, then it's not all that apparent. But I really appreciated that note. And yes, as a granddaughter of an engineer, it definitely freaked me out for a little while, but I got used to it. I so I have like some OCD tendencies and haven't ever been diagnosed, but like border on diagnosability. And a lot of it is with symmetry and balance. And so that just like... Yeah. It's not off enough that it's immediately noticeable. You have to go looking for it. Our gospel reading for this episode is John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Having not believed the women, the disciples, including Thomas the second time, are given proof of Jesus' resurrection, after which Thomas boldly proclaims his faith in Jesus as Lord. So one of the themes for this episode is disability, 
we here get this glimpse of Jesus as the disabled, resurrected Christ. Yes. They still have wounds in their side, in their ankles and wrists. It's probably very painful and hard to walk or move. This is an insight that comes from disability theology and crip theology. So if you are interested in learning more about that, you should definitely check it out. There are a lot of really great people who are doing work around theology and disability theology. And yeah, so definitely check it out. But I think it's really powerful in all of the ways that like abled people have created some sort of resurrected theology, heavenly theology thing where someone who is disabled in their life on earth is like healed and not disabled in heaven is really problematic and I think it's really powerful to do things the other way and there's a movie that I saw that was like it was one of those Disney movies that they back in the day when they were coming out with a movie every month and I was a kid slash teenager and really into that stuff being a teenager means you still are a kid that's okay it's true there was one where the main character was a kid who was a wheelchair user and there's like this one point at which like the kid has interactions with God and or angels or something I don't remember very much about it but gets this glimpse of heaven and people who are able-bodied and don't use wheelchairs around him are like wondering what heaven's going to be like and the glimpse he gets is actually that everyone all of the angels use wheelchairs and so it's this is like huh, cool. script kind of thing that I loved. Also, we'll uh, share a link to Pastor Beth Wartick, who has a great article yes. that she wrote about disability and theology in the church. As we dive into the verses for this passage, verse 20, we read, After Jesus said this, they showed them their hands and their side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw Jesus. And this reminded me of the ways that scars and wounds are parts of our identities, right? I have a scar on my lower lip and a scar on my forehead, and those are stories that actually are, like, in different ways powerful in my life. But I think also of, like, the ways that they are intimate, especially when we have scars that are not, like, super visible for us. Yeah. And it reminded me of this one work of art This one work of art by a Swedish photographer named Elizabeth Olsen Wallen. But the photograph is a remaking of one of the really famous work paintings from this time period, from this story. And instead of the disciples putting their fingers in Jesus' side, it's Jesus as a trans man. And so people like touching the scars after Mm -hmm. top surgery, which is really powerful and intimate. And like, there's a lot of complicated stuff around that for a lot of those of us who are trans. And yeah, yeah, I just really love that particular like identity connection piece, especially as someone who, like I understand Jesus, the resurrected Christ to be trans, Mm -hmm. to be non-binary and omni-gender and agender and all of those things and so to have an actual depiction of trans identity as resurrection is beautiful sure 
In verse 22, we read, When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Or, if you're the doctor in the episode The End of the World, and you're expected to give a gift to the other guests at a party that you've just crashed, but you had no warning and so you <laughs> didn't know you should bring anything because, you know, you weren't actually invited, <laughs> you might decide that that gift is the air from my lungs, and then breathe on them. This is maybe not as generous as giving someone the Holy Spirit, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, also, probably not great party etiquette but no one ever said that the doctor was particularly polite. Yeah, especially not great party etiquette when there's a global pandemic. Yes, no, especially don't don't wear your masks, people. Double up on the masks, all the masking, all the protecting, all the blocking of the air from the lungs. Yes. Thank you. This has been the periodic Emily's Anxiety About the Pandemic Spotlight. But I really did enjoy that episode. Christopher Eccleston got to have a lot of fun. Yeah. In verse 24, we read, But Thomas, who was called the twin, those of you who have listened in the past to our podcast know that I love Thomas and particularly think about Thomas as being blind. And so the idea of Thomas being called the twin makes, makes sense in that context of having someone with him to help navigate unfamiliar places and streets and stuff. What I really like about this also is just like the nicknames, right? I mean, if Thomas is not blind, then what does it mean that he is called the twin? Is he actually a twin? Or is there something? Is he a Gemini? Is he a Gemini? (laughs) Does he just always like to go out two by two? Is he the reason that Jesus sent the 70 out in pairs? Is he one of those guys that just looks like a lot of other people? Some people have one of those faces. It's true. Is he just a frequent doppelganger? So I like that, especially like in the context of other nicknames and things like in Divergent, Four and Triss both have nicknames. And Triss's nickname comes from her birth name. And Four's nickname comes from this particular role he has within his faction and with it when it comes to fear which is what his faction is like super not against but like in favor of challenging and like they don't want people yeah they don't want people to be stuck in their fear what do you think is the reason for thomas's nickname or what nicknames do you have that you really love do tell do tell In verse 30, we hear, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Just because it's awesome doesn't mean you're going to get to see it, folks. Sorry. Just like how Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty had a battle of wills that lasted for months or years even, we're not really sure, uh, thanks Conan Doyle, before ending at Reichenbach Falls. That whole process is just very briefly mentioned in one of the later books. And apparently it was totally awesome, but we don't actually get to see any of it. Which also makes me wonder exactly what kind of signs Jesus was doing with the other disciples. You know, did they go time traveling? Were there Muppets magically brought to life? (laughs) I'm not, you know, saying that was likely. I'm just saying it's an option. Uh, Did Jesus get bored and decide to teach the disciples Esperanto? Mm -hmm. There are lots of options. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the third Sunday of Easter with our special guests, Pace and Joe, from our spin-off After Hours podcast, Horror Nerds at Church. 
This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewan. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H. Or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you appreciate what we do or want to get actual transcripts of the podcast episodes, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that. Though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christian said, Pax Pax Vobiscum. Vobiscum.